Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Everybody sleep all right? All right. Three of you did. That's excellent. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead to 1 Peter. We're going to look at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 4, uh, and we'll go through verse 17 in uh, this session together. While, while you turn there, I wanted to uh, take this opportunity, it was either in this session or the last session, uh, to explain why I am and why the Village Church is uh, a part of the Acts 29 uh, network. I, I uh, joined the network, gosh, almost a decade ago and have been now the president for about six years. I've been in various positions over that decade. I've been on the board. I have run a region. I have sat uh, in a network and then uh, ultimately became uh, president six years ago. And, and really Acts 29 for me was uh, for the first time in my life uh, was a place that I felt like I could call home. Uh, and, and I had felt theologically like an orphan. And I don't know if that resonates with anybody in here, but I was, uh, I was thoroughly reformed, but I was happy about it, right? Uh, I mean, I was reformed, but I was really glad and happy. And I didn't think that if you weren't, you loved the devil, all right? And then uh, I am uh, personally uh, a continuist when it comes to the gifts, but I didn't look at cessationists as those uh, who had rejected the Holy Spirit, but as actual uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so I was always trying to find this space where I could dwell as a reformed complementarian uh, that, that believed in the gifts and was on mission and loved evangelism and wanted to be about the kingdom of God. And I would get in some spaces that kind of lined up that way theologically, but were really crusty. I don't know if that translates well across the different languages, but uh, were tight and angry about God's sovereign reign. Uh, and then I would get around other places that were really kind of sounded evangelistic, but came across as silly and weren't really weighted in the word of God. And so uh, for me, the first several years of ministry, I felt very much uh, like a theological orphan, uh, like a philosophical orphan in, in regards to practice, like an orphan. And so uh, by the grace of God, uh, I stumbled onto in one of the most random ways possible. It's too long of a story to tell in this session. Uh, the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. We were going to be earnest about planning churches. We were looking at doing it through uh, our denomination. Uh, and the hit rate of success in our denomination was terrible. Uh, and so, in fact, they failed more than they succeeded. Uh, and so I did not want to take our young men who were eager to plant churches and put them through a process that ended in like a 60% failure rate. Uh, and so we started researching and trying to find the, a home for us to be serious about planting churches. Uh, and that led us to Acts 29. And it has been a happy marriage. Well, it has been mostly a happy marriage uh, in that time. We have certainly weathered storms from time to time, as all humans do uh, when they try to gather and rally around things. Uh, but, but man, I could just, if, if you're here and you're not a two nine man, I'm, you're, you're just looking uh, at some things that God has done really regardless of where we meet in the world. God has done something uh, regarding brotherhood and affection for one another. I hope that's coming across even as you have, we're happy to see each other. Uh, we are, are an, a, a cross 
the world. We operate in different ways philosophically in regards to practice, but theologically we're all standing on the same foundation, which, which gets rid of, I have found, gets rid of some of the silliness that can occur in uh, evangelicalism or in the Christian faith where you want to kind of judge a different philosophy or practice. But what Acts 29 has certainly helped me with is there are different models of church out there uh, among Acts 29 churches that are impossible for me to vilify, even if I might disagree with them, because I know the hermeneutic, I know the approach to the Bible, and I know the seriousness uh, about uh, God's sovereign reign and about God's zeal to seek and save the lost among the nations of the earth. And so, man, I, I have got story after story about how God has used the men of this network to, to shape, to press, to rebuke, to encourage, uh, and to help me be uh, the most sanctified version of myself uh, that I can be at the age of 43 with plenty more work to be done, right? Uh, and so that's why I'm Acts 29. I could tell more stories, but I'd rather get to the text, okay? Um, no, it, just to remind you where we left off um, last Last night uh, is Peter had begun to tie back uh, the to these Gentile believers that they were a part of a bigger story, a grander story, a story that went all the way back to creation. And so he began to remind them, hey, hey, listen, or actually teach them. No, no, you are the new covenant people. You, you are the new, you are participating in the new Passover, in the new Exodus. He's, he's making their story more robust than it had been in this moment. And if you're a Christian here, you've experienced some of this, that, that you and I as believers in Christ have joined a story that is as old as time. You and I uh, have joined that promise God made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, when he said, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. You and I are a tangible picture of the fulfillment of that promise. We go back to that day. Uh, I have often tried to trace back uh, for the Village Church, the church I pastor in Texas, all the way back to that promise made in Abram, the kind of movement of the promises of God through human history, through the Spirit of God coming at Pentecost, on through the missionary movements of Paul, leading up to the planting of the Village Church in 1978. And so really, you and I are a part of this grander, bigger story. And then where Peter is going to dial in today I think it's probably one of the more significant. In fact, uh, there, there are three words that will be used here today that if you start to really dig in the Greek on this, um, really kind of open up what should be for you and I the primary pursuit of our lives. And he wants to talk a lot about the temple and the dwelling of God being with men. Uh, and so he's going to start to draw into that imagery. And so I, I want us to look at this together and then we'll, we'll dive in and look at not these three words, but these five words. So starting in verse four, here's what he says. As you come to him, th those are going to be those five words that are so significant. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you, and by the way, this is probably the most famous text, the coffee cup verse is what I would say in the United States in 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, now there's something beautiful happening here with these five words, as you come to him. This kind of phrase is in the present tense. It means it's past action with continuing action. It means we are continually coming to him. And then it defines who it is we're continually coming to and who we're continually coming to is the stone that was rejected by men that has become the cornerstone. Now, this is one of Peter's kind of go-to sermons. If you're a pastor, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've kind of got that sermon. If you're married to a pastor, you could, you could do that sermon that your husband has. That, that one sermon that in a pinch, he's just ready to give. Well, this is Peter's kind of go-to sermon. We know this because he uses the same language when he's before the council in Acts chapter four, right after uh, Solomon's portico. Uh, he is brought before the rulers and he once again uses Psalm 118 as the launching point for his argument that Jesus Christ is who's being spoken of in Psalm 118 when it talks about salvation coming to the people of God and that the stone would be rejected and would become the cornerstone by the will of God and for the glory of God. And you can read all about that in Psalm 118. We don't have that space, but for Peter, he says, as you come to the one who has been rejected. Now, what's he doing? He's encouraging these people who are being what? Rejected. So he's reminding them, hey, if they have rejected our king, they will certainly reject us. We are not better than our king. But as you come to him, there's these things happening. And that's where we, we go into the next part of this text, where as you come to him and who is him, Jesus, the cornerstone that has been rejected, but, but actually placed by God upon which he's building a spiritual house. And, and I love this language of spiritual house because the point of the text is not that believers are being built into a spiritual house, but that they as living stones as a spiritual house are being built up. Now, now do you hear the distinction between that? It's not that we are a spiritual house, but that we are living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house as we come to him so that the building up uh, of the dwelling place of God among men that happens in the life of Christians happens as we come to him. If you are not 
coming to Jesus, this spiritual house that blesses the nations does not happen. This royal priesthood, this thing that God is about, this dwelling among humankind ceases to be visible when you and I refuse to come to him and maybe take some Bible verses and own ministry in a way that's not helpful. And so I, I, I want to argue this way in the first part of this sermon. If you could condense the Bible into a simple phrase and say, this is what the Word of God is about, I would just argue that you can make the Bible this phrase, God with us. That, that's the theme, that's the thrust, that's the story of the Bible. God with us. It's what you see in the garden. God with us. The initiating power of God creates man and woman, not because he's lonely or lacking. Right? The Godhead, the triune God of the universe was not lonely. He was not bored. It was an overflow of his own perfections that led to the beauty of the universe and the creation of man and woman in his image. And it was sin that broke God dwelling with man. And so then as we move through the biblical narrative, what, what happens next? The people of God are in slavery. They're in captivity and God calls them out and then sets up what? The tabernacle. Well, what was the tabernacle? God with us. Uh, and then after the tabernacle, people rebel against God yet again. This is a theme. I don't know if you, you, you've read your Bible enough to kind of see that this is kind of a rhythm. Uh, God help us that the people of God tend to get into. And then after they reject, you, you've got what? You've got Christ putting on flesh and dwelling among us, tabernacling among us so that the coming of Christ is God with us. And then Christ is crucified and he ascends. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And what do you have? God with us. And then how does the Bible end? How does this story end? What we see is new heaven, new earth, and God with us. The story of the Bible is God with us. And Peter is making the argument that for vibrant Christian living, it's going to require a as you come. Not a, I once came, but as you come. A repeated, I need to be in the presence of Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to be near him, to know him, to love him, and be captivated by the beauty of Christ. So much so that I want to argue with you that the goal of your life, the umph of your life, should be to cultivate a life in the presence of Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ himself uh, would, would argue this way to his own disciples because uh, as you come to him equals the power of being in his presence. In John 15, 1 through 11, you'll, you'll know this text, I pray. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, so I want to stop there. N notice that being fruitful also gets you pruned. Like I think people look blow, like like to blow past that. Yeah, yeah. So, so oftentimes what, what you feel might be God's punishment is actually God's loving, kind hand. Right? Like even the fruitful get pruned for what reason? Greater fruitfulness, or at least that's what Jesus said. I'm, I'm banking my eternity that he knows what he's talking about. Every branch 
in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, this text has everything to do with this concept of as we come to him, because Jesus, before his arrest, is trying to help his disciples know, abide in me, abide in me, remain in me, stay with me, don't leave, be in my presence, fight for this, organize your life around this. You need me, you need my presence, and you get outside of that, and all your fruitfulness dries up, and all your vitality and all your joy shrivels up into dry branches, and it'll be gathered and burned. Uh, and so there's a lot going on here in John 15 that's related to what Peter is trying to communicate to those in difficult situations about the power of as we come into the presence of Jesus, we are renewed and we are shaped as these living stones into a spiritual house. And so we see in John 15 that Jesus is the source of life. Now, I need you to hear this nuance here. It is only in Jesus that genuine fruit grows. It is only in a life of abiding with Christ in a ministry steeped in Christ that fruit is genuine fruit. You cannot, with your will and with your strategies, create love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, those are a work of the Spirit of Christ done in the abiding presence of Christ and not wrought by any program of man. I also want to point out in this that it's only in him that we stay vibrant and healthy. That's, that's what Jesus is arguing. You want to be vibrant? You want to be healthy? Get in here. Come to me. Get in here. Abide. Remain. Don't leave. Stay. Now think about that. Like, what does that even look like to just never leave? It's not like you can just stay all day in your devotional time. At least my church isn't going to have that. You know, I'd love to come to that meeting, but I'm abiding. Right? So, so what does this look like? Well, let's talk. I think it's important to note that the argument that's being made here is that, um, that the life of Christ is the light in us, not the other way around. So many of us believe that, that if we're light, then we'll have life. And Jesus is arguing, no, 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 if, if you have life in me, if you abide in me, then you become light. You don't become light to get to life. 
You abide in my presence. As you come to me, you become the light that, that the world begins to see and marvel and be drawn to that is you and me, the hope of glory. He makes this argument in John 1, verse 4, when, the, when John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. It wasn't the light of men that was life. It was in him was life. So in Jesus is life, and the life that we get in Jesus becomes the light to men. And then we see yet again, Jesus in many of his teachings um, explain that abiding in his presence as we come into his presence, we're transformed in the ways that God is interested in transforming us. In John 5, 39 through 40, there's this scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, and it's an interesting one. Here, here's what he says in, in John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for being Bible guys and not Jesus guys. You come to the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and yet those scriptures are pointing to me as life, and yet you will not come to me for life. And then he says again in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am life. You want life and life abundantly? You want life and life to the full? That's found in me and that's found in abiding, remaining as you come into my presence. Then he's going to argue here that the father is the vine dresser, that he takes away fruitless branches and that he prunes back fruitful branches. He argues here that we are dead sticks outside of the abiding power of Jesus Christ. Without being in his presence, we become dead sticks, incapable of fulfilling our calling by our own might, will, or natural talent and ability. The solution, he argues here, is remain in me and ask whatever you wish, and it will be done to you. I also like here near at the end of John 15, you find out the secret to obedience the secret to obedience is not knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong because we know that and we still choose what's wrong. Amen? The secret to obedience, according to Jesus in John 15, is abiding in his presence. So, so let's think about that. I am the best husband I ever am. Not when I know what I should do as a husband, but when I've been in the presence of Jesus. I am the best father I ever am when I feel near to Jesus Christ and I've been abiding in the presence of Jesus Christ. Not when I know, here are the best practices of being a good daddy. Here are the best practices of being a good husband. Not after I read strategies on how to date my wife, right? It's being in the presence of Jesus Christ that conforms me in such a way that I can serve, walk in patience, walk in gratitude, be moved in love, and so let, let's talk for just a moment or two before we talk about coming out of this as you come section of First Peter and into what's being accomplished in being in his presence. How this might actually look on a day-to-day -day basis, because I don't know what your world looks like, but I certainly have an elder board that wouldn't let me just stay in my office all day praying. 
right? There, there are plenty of meetings that I've got to go to. There are plenty of, uh, and I don't think by abiding presence and, and as you come, he means to pray quickly before you get started on the real work. So I think he, he probably is asking for more than that. And so uh, I, what I want to kind of argue um, is that there is a way to live our lives where throughout our day, we are reorienting our hearts around who we are in Christ and what Christ has called us to and what he has done in us. So John Calvin would call this, don't panic, John Calvin would call this uh, the rule of life. Uh, and, and although a lot of times rule of life is chalked up to some the, the kind of Catholic mystics, uh, the only way that can be true is if John Calvin was a Catholic mystic. I don't know how well you know history, but no one has ever accused Calvin of that. He has been accused of a lot of things, but being a mystic is not one of those, right? You know, that guy just isn't serious enough about the word. It was never an accusation levied against Calvin, right? I mean, he killed a guy once, and so there was that, but, but mysticism isn't, isn't one of them. Uh, and so rule of life is this idea that throughout the natural flows and transitions of my day, I'm going to stop for a few seconds and consider who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm going to orient my heart around his kingdom again. Uh, and so if I used my own personal kind of rule, um, what this looks like is just being very intentional with natural transitions because everybody in this room, regardless of the size of your church or the scope of your responsibility, has natural transitions in your day. So like personally for me, I, I'm, I get up early. I tend to be an early morning guy, not a late night guy. Kids did that to me. I wasn't always that way. Children will mess up your natural God-given rhythms selfishly. And so I used to be a night owl and that, that is not, I want to be in REM sleep by 930. And, and so I'm an early morning and I want to start my day by opening up the word of God, setting my intention, drinking from the well of scripture and reminding my heart of God's call on my life as his son, not as a pastor, not as a leader, but to orient my heart around the fact that Jesus loved me before he called me to any of those things. And that I am first and foremost his son, and he delights in me. I want to orient my heart around that. Uh, and then I want to get in my truck. After that, I, I want to get the kids ready, help my wife in any way I can. And then I want to get in my truck. And as I drive to my office, I want to begin to pray through that day's schedule. I want to just ask that the Lord would bless this meeting. That, that God would uh, move in power in this meeting. I know this meeting is going to be difficult, and so I'm just asking the Spirit of God to be present in a way to encourage, to build up, to rebuke, to break, to build, to do the things that only He can do, and I know that I cannot do. And then I'll get to work, and, and what I've tried to do is create, um, I, I don't want cascading meetings. I don't know how well that will translate. I, I don't want to go from one meeting to the next meeting. I want 10 to 15 minutes between meetings. And in that 10, 15 minutes, I want to reorient my heart again to who I am in Christ, to what he's done, to what he's called me to. And I want to reconnect with the Lord, not just kind of pray and read the Bible in the morning, forget what I did by lunch. I want to reorient my heart again in that gap between meetings. And then as I get in my truck and head off to lunch or as I get ready for lunch, I want to yet again begin to pray for um, whoever I'm having lunch with or whatever meeting I'm going into to have lunch. And I, and I want to kind of once again reconnect, come into the presence of Jesus as you come, as first Peter's going to argue. I want to get back in there and remind myself again, because I'm prone to forget as we've already covered, as the people of God have been prone to forget since Genesis three. 
And since they crossed the Red Sea and it looks like less than 48 hours later had thrown their, well, depends on who you believe, Aaron or God, right? Uh, they threw their gold in the fire and a calf came out, you know? And um, from, from there, uh, I want to um, end my day. By, by the end of my day, I'm not sure what to pray anymore. So maybe you're just more spiritual than I am. I'm just kind of out by 4.30, 5.30. I'm, I've just prayed for everyone in the world that I know. Uh, and so I will usually just read a prayer out loud from Valley of Vision at the end of the day. Uh, I'll just put my hand on my heart and I'll just read that. That's a group of Puritan prayers. Um, and then the most important prayer that I pray every day is what I call the driveway prayer. And so when I pull into my driveway at home, uh, I have three children, um, two dogs, a cat, and three horses. So I have no idea what I'm about to walk into. So I could walk into the smell of dinner and children's happiness and shalom. <laughs> or I could walk into chaos and suffering and the loss of a child or an animal or a wife who's molting. And so what I need to do is sit in the driveway for a second and go, Lord, no idea what I'm about to walk into. Will you strengthen me now to love my wife, to serve my children, and to step into the privilege that you've given me alone to be with this woman, to love these children, to be distinctly their daddy. No other man on earth can do what you've invited me and given me the privilege to do. And just orient my heart, because if I don't do that, I'll be really aware of all that I've done and really ignorant to all that she's done. And so I just need to orient my heart real quick before I walk in the door so I'm not like, where's dinner? Left the house at six this morning. What have you been doing? Don't judge me right now. Don't you dare judge me right now like I'm all up here by myself. Right? So the driveway prayer is this significant moment for me to reorient my heart around what uh, J.R. Vassar lovingly calls the second shift. That second shift. I'm not done. Right? If I wanted to be done when I got off of work, I, I shouldn't have got married. Yeah, if I, if I wanted to be done, I should have stayed single. But I didn't. I made a covenant before God and to this woman, and I'm going to fulfill that by the grace of God. And that requires the driveway prayer. And then the, my favorite prayer isn't that one. My favorite prayer is after we get the kids down and everything, I lay in bed and I just remind myself as I drift off to sleep that God's affection for me has not wavered one way or the other per my ability to do all these transitionary things. And here's what great, that in total adds zero time to my day. Those are natural transitions. They're natural breaks. It's not like I've added a new, you know, I'm going to pray for four hours in the afternoon, or it's just a kind of a continual, I want to reorient my heart around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the, this argument that Peter's making, as you come, you've come for your salvation, but just keep coming. He's, he's referencing back to, to what Jesus said to him. Remain in me, Peter. Remain in me. Apart from me, you will do nothing. Apart from me, you're dead sticks. Apart from me, you will have no strength, no power to accomplish the very thing I've given you to do, to build you into a spiritual house where I will dwell in power and reveal myself to the ends of the earth. Now, how do I know that's what all this abiding is about? Because First Peter argues that that's what all this is about. And so if you look back at the text, 
He, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Listen now, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he, he's making yet again a familiar argument for the people of God. He's hearkening back to what we see in Exodus, specifically Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where God says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He's tying these Gentiles back to his purposes and his plans that you and I, situated among the nations of the earth, would live out because of the abiding power of Christ in our lives, lives of holiness and uprightness that would reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers of this fallen world and to the nations that are in disarray. We know this because right after that is read in Exodus 19, what are, what are the people of God given? There's 10 of them. I can't make it any easier than saying there's 10 of them. Yeah, they're given the Ten Commandments. They're given the law. So he says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation. And what comes right after that? The, the law, the Ten Commandments. You will be other than. You, you will be different than. In my abiding presence and power, I am going to transform the way you externally live morally. And we see even in the coming of Christ that Christ has not abolished that, but that he has fulfilled that. He argues that in the Sermon on the Mount. And even in this text, if you look at 11 and 12, you, you see it again. Look there at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, he's not wavered at all in regards to external moral holiness. He's just saying it's the abiding presence of Jesus Christ that transforms our life from the inside out. What you see in this place is, is what I would call at the village church, what we would teach the village is, is our dominion as Christians, right? So we've already talked about dwelling uh, and dwelling is that God with us idea. This is part of the kingdom of God. And now you've got dominion, basically that God has got a call on your life and my life, living in the presence of God to push back darkness and to bring light into darkness, to bring order into chaos. And he's doing that with you and with me. In fact, one of the more humbling, amazing realities in the universe is that God's big plan is Christ in us. It just, if it weren't for a knowledge of Jesus, seems like a really terrible plan. Right? Like you and me? Like I'm not saying you're not a pretty group. I'm just saying that if this is God's big plan for the world, we are doomed unless 
Christ in us, the hope of glory. And this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people of his own possession is about God's plan on your life and my life in his presence to bring order to chaos, to bring light to darkness, to push back darkness as ministers and agents of reconciliation. This is the call on your life. This is the call on my life. This is, what, this is why it's, we're required to keep coming into the presence of Jesus because we're prone to believe that we can do these things on our own and then you get counterfeit fruit. You get fruit that might look good on the outside, but it's not going to last when all said and done. You heard Philip in the opening session just talk about the fact that we want to build with things that last and don't burn away. We don't want to build with straw and hay. We want to build with things that last, that are eternal. It's why we preach and embrace the word of God. It's why we want to be in the presence of Jesus, informed by his word. I thought Johnny did such a great job last night of kind of unpacking how the triune nature of God is actually what's leading us to plant churches. We want to be rooted in these ways as we minister in the hard places. And then he goes on to say that this, this kingdom of priests, that we're going to make spiritual sacrifices. And what are those spiritual sacrifices? I, I, I honestly think the text is, is, is fairly simple at this point. It's, it's pursuit of wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. That's our sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice of praise and it's a joyful sacrifice we make, a pursuit of wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. This is the kind of sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. Lives as a spiritual act of worship. Now, I chose my words carefully there, right? I, I wanted to say a pursuit of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Why? Well, because Peter has already shared with us that progressive sanctification can be long with a lot of highs and lows. And, and I would say that at any given moment, most of the Christians I know would argue, no, 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 I am pursuing wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. But, but I, we, already, I, we already did this in the first session. Almost all of us would say, man, I thought I'd be farther along. I thought this struggle would fall off. I thought this compulsion would no longer be with me. I thought, right? And yet here we are still in our humanness, Christ still transforming us, the spirit of God still convicting us. I think it's a universal Christian experience to have the Lord swing open a door in our souls that we didn't even realize that closet was in there and show us some things about ourselves that we were unaware that we were doing or bent towards. There are blind spots in everybody's life and we can't see them, which is why they're called blind spots. Right? So you can look around all you want. Here's where the word of God and the abiding presence of Christ matter so deeply to the man or woman who wants to bear genuine fruit with their lives. Because it's in the abiding presence of Christ through the word of God by the Holy Spirit that we see our blind spots and are invited into repent and to become more like our Savior. Now, from, from here, you, you see he's shaping some things in the book. We are a new people. Uh, our former allegiances are gone. And so I've oftentimes gotten in trouble in the United States by, by saying this sentence, I have more in common with a Christian in Iraq than I do with a non-believing American. 
I have more in common with Christians all over the world, even if those Christians are in nations that are aggressively antagonistic towards the United States, than I do with any American that has rejected Jesus Christ. My allegiances are to the kingdom of God and not to my country. I belong to a greater country, a greater kingdom than my nation. It's just the truth of the Word of God. My allegiances have shifted. I am a part of a new people, and I have been given a new identity. I am a son of God on high. Like I, I am a son, and, and nothing can take that from me. This is where identity becomes secure. Um, nine years ago, uh, we went in to see a neurosurgeon that was going to cut the tumor out of my right frontal lobe. And, and he started to explain the, the right frontal lobe is where you do spatial reasoning. He said, basically, that's where you take ideas and, and you look at the idea and, and you kind of file it in the different parts of your brain. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's the only skill I possess. <laughs> like if I can't, I mean, what is theology, but looking at an idea and, and filing it away and trying to communicate it clearly. And so Dr. David Barnett was like, that's what you do in the part of your brain we're going to cut out. And I was just like, well, okay, I guess I'll be biggie sizing fast food somewhere after this surgery, because that's literally the only skill I have is spatial reasoning. And, and it was this beautiful moment for me to have uh, everything that people would praise about me threatened and to land on the solid ground that, no, 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 my sonship cannot be taken from me. I am not first and foremost a preacher. I am not first and foremost a husband. I am not first and foremost a father. I am not first and foremost anything other than a beloved son of God. And my father will not betray me. He will not abandon me. He will not forget me. I am his, and he has called me his beloved. I have a new identity. And then lastly, I have a new mission. And we talked about some of this last night, right? We, we have a new mission now. My mission in life was licentiousness. It was wealth. It was here and now. It was building on this life only. And now the mission has changed. The mission is eternal. The purpose of my life has shifted. The, the purpose of my life is to abide in the presence of Jesus Christ and embrace this priesthood that I'm a part of now. Embrace um, heralding the good news. Embrace pushing back the darkness and bringing order to chaos. This is God's call on my life. He empowered and equipped me to do that. And this is what life is about. Peter has completely shaped and changed our view of reality at this point. And then in verses 13 through 17, he puts it on the ground. So let's look at 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I love that verse. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, now what we're seeing here is all that we just discussed now put on the ground. And he gives these kind of imperatives here. Be good citizens, do good, and use your freedom to live as servants of God. And so you've got these imperatives, and these imperatives are not separate from what we just covered. They're actually a big part of what we just covered. As we abide in the presence of Jesus, as we come, as we embrace that we are being formed as a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God, as we embrace our mission, as we embrace our new identity, as we embrace our new allegiances, we're doing all of that in the real world. Right? We're doing all of that right here, right now, in the places in which we dwell. I am doing this in Dallas, Texas. You are doing this wherever you are from. And so he takes this thing from the ethereal idea of allegiance and identity and mission, and he puts it on the ground. And he commands, hey, be a good citizen. And we know that there are Christians who are going to refuse to obey laws that put them in stark contrast to the allegiance that they now have to the kingdom of God. And so they're fed to lions and they're thrown in prison. And the book of Hebrews said they're sawn in two. So it's not that we just wholeheartedly just do whatever governments tell us, especially if governments are telling us to rebel against our ultimate allegiance. But as far as we can, we are good citizens. As much as we can, we do good so that we might silence the ignorance of fools. And I think it's important to note that, and, and Jesus is going to teach on that, if you're being persecuted because you're a fool, that's very, very different. If you're harsh and antagonistic and angry and you're being persecuted, well, that's on you. This text and, and the teaching in the Bible about persecution because of a love of Jesus Christ is not saying, hey, um, be an awful person. And then when you're persecuted, just know that that happens to people who love Jesus. That, that's certainly not what's happening here. He says, no, be good citizens. Do good. And in your doing good, loving others, practicing hospitality, you will silence the ignorance of fools. Um, my wife uh, led a, a woman to the Lord um, who was a pot-smoking lesbian who was training our daughter in how to ride horses. And so my daughter, just kind of seeing how we did life, just brought Lisa into our home. So it was this really interesting dynamic where this pot-smoking lesbian came into the pastor's house and was just mortified. And we just kept having her over for dinner and, and kept inviting her into our lives. And then eventually Lauren led her to the Lord um, on our front porch. And then Lauren baptized her in our services. And she's just kind of become a part of our family. And anytime there's any accusation against the village church that we're homophobic, uh, or that we hate gay people, here's this former pot-smoking lesbian going, that's the most absurd thing ever. Let me tell you something about these people. These people have me in their homes. They open their lives to me. They, they roll the they, they risk for me. They have me into their, our, our house at Thanksgiving. They, they let me spend Christmas Eve with them. I'm a single mom with, with no family in the state. These people do not, they are not homophobic. They are not. So how do you shut up fools? The ignorance of fools? By living the light of the gospel, by abiding in the presence of Jesus Christ and doing good 
And then lastly, I, I would just say we see here, oh gosh, I see how far I'm over. How about I just do this? The primary role that you should give yourself over to is a cultivation of coming into the presence of Jesus Christ. What you need is not new tactics. What you need is not new strategies. If you need those things, you need them after this. As you come, present tense, you did it in the past and you need to keep doing it. What you need, your primary role, is the cultivation of abiding, remaining in the presence of Christ. And through that, embrace the mission of Jesus by being good citizens and doing good. What, what I love about those pieces is they're contextual. Like, what does it look like to be good citizens? Well, that, that matters what nation you're in, doesn't it? What does it look like to do good to others? Well, it, it, that, that's going to vary from context to context. And so this is an opportunity for you to kind of exegete where you live. What does it look like to be good citizens? What does it look like to do good? Where am I and what good can I do where I am? And these are legitimate questions that everybody has to answer. Like the church I pastor is an affluent, predominantly white church. So what good can we do in our area, right? We're not, there's not a lot of poverty around where I am, right? And I'm not going to start a ministry to help somebody get a fourth car. <laughs> so what do we see? What is the good that we get to do? When you have everything and you're empty, your relationships suffer. Your marriages suffer. You exalt your children as gods. You give yourself over to constant leisure and comfort that has um, less of a return the more times you go to the well. So you step into broken marriages. You try to expose as often as possible that the comforts of this life are bankrupt compared to the comfort of knowing Christ and resting in his presence. So, so that's where we are. And then we leverage all that rich white money to plant churches all over the world. That's how we do good. <laughs> Doug, I knew you would, I knew you would give me something on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'll give it to me, brother. The primary role that you have been given is to cultivate a life that remains, abides in the presence of Jesus Christ. It is there that you will bear fruit. And outside of that abiding presence, dead sticks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for just the opportunity this morning to come together. And man, just let your word read us. That's what I pray, God, that, that you would have read us, that you would have pressed us, chiseled away at us, revealed things about us. We ask your forgiveness where in practice we rely on our own efforts and abilities. I know everyone in this room would deny that we're prone to that, and yet we are certainly prone to believing that we've got this, and that's usually revealed in our lack of earnest prayer. Teach us how to abide all the more with you, to remain in you. Let us embrace our new allegiance, our new identity, and the mission that you've given us. Thank you that there's joy to be found there. There's life to be found there. We bless your name. Bless us today. And it's for your beautiful name. Amen.